Hey there, Disclaudience. Welcome to episode 21 of Fully Disclosed Podcast. I, as always, am your host, Brad Lowe's. Today's episode features for, uh, Dr. Frank Romano, and he is uh, absolutely amazing, I gotta say. This is definitely one of the most um, important, I think, episodes that I've ever recorded, not just uh, in terms of the show, but also in terms of what the listeners uh, should be paying attention to in the news. Um, he is a peace activist um, and an international lawyer. Most of his work is being done in the Gaza Strip and in the West Bank of uh, Israel. Um, and his main goal is he's trying to bring peace to Middle Eastern Jews, Christians, and Muslims, basically anyone who's a follower of the major Abrahamic religions. And uh, he's also a professor at the University of Paris. He's got a new book out called Love and Terror in the Middle East, 4th Edition. And I got to tell you, he was one of the most amazing people I've ever spoken to. Um, he's put himself into dangerous situations, but he also has shown that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, I think. And there's definitely hope that uh, some progress can be made in this area and that maybe eventually peace can be found. Uh, I hope you enjoy the intro music by Expert in Mental called Pavilion Dubstep. Um, and also, this is really exciting too. Uh, I want everyone to check out next week. There's a radio program called Stuart Venner Tells It Like It Is. And uh, yours truly will be interviewed on that program next week. So definitely check that out. And I hope that you all enjoy my interview with the insightful Dr. Frank. able to sit down and talk with you um especially about a subject that fascinates me i have done a lot of research into the middle east in particular i've taken a lot of muslim studies classes you know i've, I've done a lot trying to orient myself i guess is uh, one of the best terms uh with something that's unfamiliar to most americans yeah man that's true you've taken some good steps there that um a lot of people don't, even in the Middle East. So I think that's important to take those courses and think about things and get away sometimes of the mainstream news. Yes. That sometimes, uh, as you probably know, because you have studied this area, mm -hmm. the mainstream news doesn't always carefully study it, or it's filtered, filtered news, and we're not getting it all. Even, um, even the news organizations that claim to be, uh, like I, I guess you would say, open-minded to the Middle East still get their facts wrong, too, uh, constantly. Do. I guess so the first thing I want to talk to you about uh, is your book, Love and Terror in the Middle East. And I want to ask you, like, what is – is it a fiction novel? Is it a romance novel? Or is it um, uh, actually more of an organizational novel about, like, how to bring peace to the Middle East? It's, it's actually sort of all those things. Okay. Um, I, I teach at the University of Paris, and I teach literature, and I realized um, after having read – it's a memoir, right? But I've had re read a few memoirs and autobiographies and biographies that I don't get through them because they're written sort of, you know, without transition. They're not written like a story. And so I pick right. up and maybe read a chapter or two and put it down for a month or so. Mm -hmm. I want 
I mean, I, I went through these experiences last 10 years. I've been organizing interfaith groups in Israel and Palestine, and so and it's been absolutely amazing. And that's sort of the love part of the title, Love and Terror in the Middle East. The terror part, though, is that a couple of my friends have been murdered lately, in one in the West Bank, the other in Jerusalem. So there's, there's, it's, there, there have been some risks, and there's kind of been the downside of the activist work. Um, but so what I did... Uh, and I incorporated all that into into the book about my friends working together, working in Israel, working in Palestine, and realized I, I really want to share this with people and I want people to get through it. So I spent several you know years you know just after I wrote it down um, to work on the language so it reads like a novel. So it so it's um. It's a, a memoir, but it reads like a novel. It starts out in the U.S., goes to Paris. It's a story, and it has stuff about my personal life because my publisher said people really can't get into who I am if they don't know where I came from. Right. So the first edition, this is the fourth edition. The first edition was just going to Paris and then going in uh, from there after I was studying, and I had a bit of family there, but going right into the um, the Middle East um, in, uh, stuff. Uh, instead, I mean, I kind of, you know, uh, thread my way through right. my life and how I got there and what motivated me. And then about 100 pages into the book, I actually get to Israel and Palestine. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's start there then. What did motivate you? What connection did you have to the Middle East that made you say, I want to help this area, this region? Well, it, it wasn't even that. It wasn't even that I want to help the region. It was like um, 30 years ago, I was studying philosophy at the University of Paris. And I'm I'm from the country. You know, I was raised in Northern California and mm -hmm. worked on farms a lot. And so big cities, especially like Paris, right. uh, at first I was, um, you know, very uh, enthused and uh, fascinated uh, by city life, and then after a while, the subway started to get to me, and mm -hmm. city people uh, wasn't used to, you know, the fast pace and the games that people played. So I got kind of disillusioned with city life. So I had this, why well, I, I sort of started to, you know, I was sort of marginalized, uh, sort of at the at the cusp of society. I, I mm -hmm. rented a room, and I was isolated a lot, and I had this dream that uh, one night, uh, it's kind of going through a, depress, a depression, and I had a dream saying that I shouldn't be there. I shouldn't be in Paris. I should take off and and head uh, south, and then across North Africa, get into the Middle East, and see if I can work. Uh, you know, do something there on the interfaith process. That's all the information I got during the dream. But I, it was a powerful sign, and I figured, well, um, how how do I know? It's it's true or not uh, if I don't take off. And so right. I took off. Really, after two months, I gave notice. I was a, a waiter in a restaurant that helped pay for my rent. And then I was I, I left school and just took off and took a, a train, got down as far as Casablanca, Morocco. Didn't have much money, though. So I was living in the streets, and I met a group that invited me into a mosque. And, and the imam said, look, um, why don't you get off the streets, stop living like a dog and, and move into the mosque and learn about Islam and some Arabic. And that was one of the things I wanted to do. I'm headed to the Middle East. I wanted to work with Muslims as well as Jews and Christians. And I, and I accepted the offer. I paid a little bit for room and board, but it was like maybe 20 bucks for two weeks room and board. Right. I mean, 
that was uh, even in even in those days that was in 1978 that that was a pretty good deal mm-hmm. and so i the, the the thing is though i i i walked into the mosque and they led me in and introduced me to these people with these uh pearl white jalabas these robes and you know and it, and it, and with long beards it felt like it, it felt like they just descended from heaven and it was a it was an amazing place and 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 birds were rafting in the were nesting in the rafters above. It was a it was a high ceiling mosque, and uh, the only thing is, after a week, after learning the prayers and Arabic, I I, I told the imam, uh, you know, the head of the mosque, I said, you know, I'm a, I'm going to take off. Thank you very much for your hospitality, but, you know, I, I've got to continue across North Africa and head to the Middle East, which I had, I had shared with him my my goal to go to the Middle East. And I, I get up and I go to the door. The door is locked and there's guards around it. And I'm, I'm, I'm virtually a prisoner inside the mosque. And I, I was kind of freaking out. I went back to the imam and said, whoa, kind of shaking. What's going on here? This is weird. I mean, come on, let me out. And he said, no, just calm down. And, and I said, no, I can't. How can I calm down? And he said, but you're our guest. You're our guest for a while. I said, I'm not your guest. I'm your prisoner. Yeah. What do you want? And he, he said clearly, it was clear what they wanted. They wanted to convert me to an mm-hmm. extremist form of Islam so I could help recruit for them. So here in 1978, these groups were not on my radar. And now I'm I, radar and I'm mixed up with an extremist group. Right. Uh, that a, An expert later after reading a book, and it's all chronicled in another book called Storm Over Morocco, an expert who read the book said, no, this is not a Moroccan group. This is a Salafi, a Wahhabi group out of Saudi Arabia implanted in Morocco to convert the people to an extremist form of Islam. Well, the only way out really was to escape. And so um, I, I found, you know, I, I realized that it got very weird, though. They started breaking me down, and I felt, well, I'll play the game. I'll pretend I'm one of them. I'll, I'll, I won't ask any questions, and, um, and hopefully they'll release me, or at least they'll trust me. And I noticed one morning after morning prayer, they weren't following me like they usually did around everywhere. They even followed me into the bathroom to see if I was doing my ablutions the right way. And... I know, and, and I and I found a way out. I escaped and got to the middle of Casablanca. This mosque is in the outskirts. There was a mosque and a ten-foot wall around it, kind of a com- compound. I escaped out of there, got to the middle of Casablanca, and found a family. I was lucky because I knew the group would be hide would, would be looking for me. I needed to hide from them, and I found a family that hid me until I could. I returned to Paris, and and that's the end of that story. So this is the original thing that motivated me to get to the Middle East. Now, I never got to the Middle East, and then 25 years later, I was always wondering. I'd got back to the States. I'd became a, since became a lawyer and then returned to Paris as a professor. I got my Ph.D. there, and I always had in the back of my mind, um, was this a true uh, vision or was it just another one of my fantasies? And I figured, well, now I'm going to go this time. This time I took a plane. I didn't go – through uh, North Africa. I mean, you've been there, done that. I think yeah. I'll just take a quick plane trip, get there in 2005, and it's been magical ever since. Uh, I've been organizing groups and, and doing things, not just talking about peace and love, but actually you know, helping people plant olive trees in, in the West Bank uh, to, to um, make up for the thousands of olive trees that, that have been uprooted for the walls and help build buildings that were destroyed due to the Antifada, creating bonds among the people, a lot of grassroots efforts for peace that you don't hear about in the news, and all that's chronicled in the book, Love and Terror in the Middle East. Now, the fourth edition, and then, you know, I'm sure you'll have other questions, just want to add just one last quick thing for the fourth edition, is um, I 
I made it a fourth edition because a, a, a very strange incident took place several months ago in, in the West Bank in a refugee camp. That day I had an interfaith group with Muslim Jews and Christians in the refugee camp. <clears throat> it's kind of a contested refugee camp called Janine in northern, uh, in the northern West Bank area. And that night after the, our, you know, we had a great, uh, dialogue and people came and showed up and we talked and stuff. And, but that night, um, the Israeli soldiers came into the camp and looking for someone who's accused of terrorist activities or activities against Israel and end up killing him instead of apprehending him. Uh, and then uh, there was a huge riot the next day, and I was in the middle of it. And so here I'm in the middle of a riot, and people are saying, you better get out of here and go back to Jerusalem, because, you know, a, a raged, enraged riot, right? Even though people kind of know who you are, I've been going back and forth for years in this refugee camp. You know, when when a, when a crowd's enraged, they're looking for a scapegoat, mm-hmm. they know you're an American, and you're, you know, America's linked to Israel. Well, I couldn't. I was frozen, and, and while I was watching, I, there were about two, three hundred Adolescents and, and young adults, you know, especially males, you know, rampaging around around in the in the in this town square, breaking things, burning tires, and all of a sudden, uh, I see a group of about fifty of them started walking toward me, and I'm thinking, oh my God, what's this? And I, and I, I backed up, and I, I was in the back of a closed door. I couldn't get, I couldn't go anywhere. All of a sudden, they were surrounding me, and I thought, this is it. You know, there's nothing I can do with this, you know, enraged crowd ranting and raving. And instead of hurting me, one of the leaders reached his hand out to shake my hand. And here's, you know, it was, you know, they were frothing at the mouth, raging over the death of their friend the night before, calmed down just enough to shake my hand. And then they, they withdrew almost as quickly as they got there, back into the crowd to continue the rioting. And I felt, you know, I added a chapter to Love and Terror called In the Midst of a Riot, because I felt there's really a hope if a crowd, part of a crowd that's enraged, can find enough to calm down and, you know, recognize certain things in a situation like that, there's hope. So I, I got, I took that as an omen and I added that as, as a last chapter. And this is the last chapter of the last edition that just came out. What you said right there at the end comes down to we need to select our representatives more carefully. Absolutely. Because it's yeah. all about who you're sending to talk to these people. If they're not receptive to that person, they're not going to be receptive to your message. You got it, and that's a huge problem. And we can go into who they're sending and all that. That's yeah. political, but that we can't, you know, we can't avoid the politics of things. Right. I, I totally agree with that. That's an absolute. I mean, it shows that you've really done your studying. Yeah. You hit right. You hit right at the heartthrob of the problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, and yeah. you can see that in America right now in Ferguson with the situation yeah. that happened there. Yes. They're just yeah. angry and they're looking for a scapegoat. So they're burning anything that they, yeah. they think represents establishment. They don't yeah. even care that it's somebody's store, that it's a small business. They just right. see store and think establishment, this is what's killing us. Yeah, and it's it's it's, it's terrible in a way because I, I, I don't know who these store owners are, but I'm sure yeah. they're probably store it had nothing to do. Uh, didn't support the police in this. No, and just no, happened to be local there. People like yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was just they unfortunately located in the area where people are angry. Yeah, and uh, that 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 is the symptom of anger. I can understand people being anger. Mm-hmm. The point of being absolutely irrational and just wanting to, yep. to, to 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 destroy, especially a member of your own family, and and to hurt. Uh, you got you, you then the primitive feelings of emotions of revenge and things come out and it it it, it makes human beings that are you know we're we're evolved into sort of civilized turn yeah. into 
raving beast. It is just amazing what can happen uh, uh, with that anger and, and why and how to how to diffuse that anger. That's another right. question. Well, and it's what it is is it's a sickness, and all we've been yeah. focused on right now is the symptoms of that sickness, which is what they're doing. Yeah. The the fact that they're burning down buildings and setting fire to cars and smashing cop vehicles and whatnot. But what we're not looking at is the disease itself and what causes that disease and trying to prevent it from happening again. Absolutely, and and, and we can go to the heart of what's happening in the states now. I, I'm you know I'm I'm American and right. I, I do appreciate having po- the police, but I understand. Well, this I've learned enough about Ferguson. I, I, I've made parallels uh, with, uh, between Ferguson and what's happened to the Middle East, and as well as what's happening in France. But um, I see. Uh, that um, in this, I think there's 75 percent African American in this area, and yeah. most of the members of the police force are white. Right. Which in itself is, 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 you know, that can happen. But, and I'm thinking, um, uh, you know, it's it's this is not just an isolated incident. This is something that's revved up over time, and it just. It was like a right. powder cake even before this happened, I think, for something like this to happen. So what what can be done? Well, I, one thing I'm under, trying to understand here, Brad, is that um, uh, you know, police have become far more and more militarized over yes. time. Yes. They now, look it, more and more yeah. like an invading army than a peacekeeping yeah. force. And, and I wonder why is this happening? Now, we have a high crime rate in some areas in the States. It's true. But I'm wondering to think that are, are these police forces, are they, are they building up arms or something, and or, or something right? Because uh, is it because that they think that this is going to help? This is going to make a, a bigger band-aid, just like the way you put it. It's like a, tr- we're treating the symptoms. We're we're not treating the focus of why there's right. a high crime rate or high high rate of violence, mm-hmm. um, which 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 going to take a lot of work, uh, just like in the Middle East, as opposed to simply um, revving things up or or um, or you know making the barriers high. And yeah. making barriers higher between human beings in the West Bank, they've got these high walls all over the place. Yep. And no, no matter how high the walls can get, that's still not going to stop. No, nope. it's not going to protect it from from inside. There's something virtually very wrong. There's something wrong. There's there's almost like a cancer from the inside. That's that it has nothing to do with the walls. The walls is almost like uh, a band aid. But uh, you know, no matter how high they are, people can get around or over and under the walls. Yep. With, motivation and and anger often motivates uh the confrontations there as well i think it's the same type of a symptom that i think we're becoming that way as a not just a western society i think the world is is not taking a step back working with human beings and i think the huge problem brad especially in the middle east it's the interest groups that tend to run the show because there's a lot of money involved and i can give you specific you hear that all the time but yeah people don't no, it just sounds right to say that. Oh, yeah. it's the interest. It's it's oil. But it's not. It's not that you're just saying that because it's it sounds good and it's politically motivated or anything like that. You're saying that because it's true and you have, there's a lot of evidence to support that. Exactly. And and you you the fact you've done your studying, you've probably seen that. Yeah. Well, and I want to say too, like because you said about the walls. Anytime human, and if you study history even in the slightest bit, anytime you build walls to try and keep people out or to keep people in or just to separate in general, it never works. Those walls always come tumbling down at some points, yeah. and it, you hope that the, it doesn't come tumbling down in a violent manner like in Troy or Jericho, and that it comes down right. in maybe a bit more of a peaceful manner like in Berlin. 
Yeah, well, I think I think that's absolutely right. Uh, if you look in history, you look at, for instance, uh, the the temple, the, the the second temple was destroyed in seventy, and that was by the Romans, the the Jewish temple. Uh, but that that's not, a, you know, I'm not making an analogy with walls, except that when you when you build barriers around you, there there is a bit of, um, you know, you can you can trace that to such high paranoia because. You are doing something wrong to feel that you have to build the barriers. Right. And, and, and right. That, that is something we have to focus on. It's inherent mistrust. I think so, because I think that the underlying issue is not separation. It's not segregation. But the thing is, what I'm beginning to understand, though, Brad, is these walls were created actually to, to exacerbate the tension. Mm-hmm. That those that created those walls, it was, it was they knew enough. Uh, the average Israeli believes that that's a security thing they did, as well as a lot of Israeli soldiers in the West Bank. In reality, the powers that be of Israel knew very well that the, the walls and what happened in Gaza is simply going to exacerbate the tension. And then, and then building the colonies, you know, they're taking over Palestinian lands in the West Bank. There are over 500,000 Jews right. in the West Bank and East Jerusalem now is going to rev up uh, uh-huh. the tension. Because it feels and, like an invasion. Exactly. And other leaders uh, are using the age-old technique to stay in war and, and keep their people um, kind of out of whack, out of balance, keep them unstable to the extent they feel they're under threat. And that helps mobilize their power. Netanyahu is a prime example. Oh, my Israeli God. He's, one of, the worst. Today. He's yes. one of the worst. And, and we yes. support him wholeheartedly, constantly. Yeah. And it's just silly. I mean, it, the, what was it? The late 90s, and I can't remember what the guy's name was now. The one that was assassinated. They almost had it. They, all, they were so Rabin. yes, 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 yes. They were Rabin, so yeah. close to yeah. s- at least some kind of long-term deal. And then, boom, assassinated, and up comes the party uh, where Netanyahu comes from. Yeah, and actually, what's even amazing, after Rabin, you had Sharon. And yeah. actually, Sharon... It was actually on um, a CCTV. I think it's called CCTV. It's a Chinese national state, international station. And uh, the um, – no, actually, it was Arise News. That's a different station, uh-huh. Arise News. And it was right after Ariel Sharon died. He's been in a coma for several, several years. And they, they had me in Paris. They had, they, they had me in Paris in a studio in Paris. And then the uh, Arise News people uh, interviewed us. And um, – I found in my discovery that Ariel Sharon, the father of the settlements, and of course he was a, a war hero too, yes. because he had yep. six day war. He went behind enemy lines twice. Yep. But so the he story was the goes. father. <laughs> so the story goes, right. And there's a lot of he was the father of the idea of the settlements and then and then when he became prime minister, you know, he was um the one who directed the withdrawal from Gaza. But as he was withdrawing, he was beefing up the settlements in the West Bank. But then he he devised a plan. He was he was realistic. Now he realized, and he didn't really care that much about Palestinians. But he knew for Israeli security, we're going to have to work with the Palestinians. We're going to have to work with the moderate Palestinians and build uh, a Palestinian state, not for the Palestinians, but for the security of Israel, because it's uh-huh. going to keep revving up no matter what. So he had a plan. He started. The, the first part was to work with withdraw from Gaza. That wasn't necessarily again for the for the peace, but he realized that's that's a, a you know a, a, a just a, a dead end staying in, in Gaza. Right. But then what he did is devise a plan for withdrawing from the colonies in the West Bank and working with the moderate Palestinians. His success and the problem is right when that plan was about ready to be uh, carried out.
out, he fell into the coma and wasn't able to do that. Now, he had the credibility to push for it because he was the Mr. Settlement. He was the, the, the war hero. And people would have followed him to do something like that. There, if he were still prime minister, there probably would have been some type of an agreement with the Palestinians. But then he died. Yeah. And he was no saint, but he died. And then Netanyahu takes over. And he does absolutely the opposite. He doesn't want to work with the moderates. Yeah. He, he made the same mistake that President Obama made two years ago when he had an opportunity yeah. to work with the Syrians, uh-huh. the Syrian uh-huh. non-Islamist, and he turned his back on him and then realized that shit afterward. Now with the ISIS issue that we're having, exactly he's realizing that- maybe we should have worked with these guys to begin with. And he's saying, let's work with it. The problem is two years ago, these are the moderates. And he, he turned his back on them and didn't help them. And, of course, they were fighting Bashar Assad. But then the United yep. States came out against Bashar Assad as well. They were not not they were not on, this, on a different page as these moderate rebels in Syria. What happened, though, is once the, the, the U.S. could not help them, they didn't get help from the outside at all, they had to join up with one rebel group or another. And they were all controlled by one form or another of al-Qaeda. Yeah. And then and then and then ISIS comes and was originally linked with Al Qaeda and separated yeah. from Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. but, but Al Nusra still working with Al Qaeda. These rebels could not stand alone. And now, after the ISIS issue has cropped its head, cropped up, President Obama made an official statement saying, "We've got to help the moderate." Syrian yeah. rebels, but you can't find them. They're, they're linked up with the uh, Islamists. There are some out mm-hmm. there, but they're pretty much integrated with the Islamist rebels now. It's yep. too, too late. Yep. And, and, and the bombing is not going to do it. Now, the bombing on the short term, I give them credit. Give the U.S. government credit to help the Yazidis. Yes. Help the Yazidis, and he helped the Kurds get back some of their villages. But in the long run, it's too little too late. And, and now we've got American generals pressuring to send American soldiers back into this quagmire. Well, and I also fear that the terror from the sky approach, it creates more sediment against our cause as well. Absolutely. That's what that's what happened in Vietnam. Remember with the napalm? Yeah, yeah. We were literally we were not only bombing, we were literally just burning, just burning, burning and then almost salting the land afterwards. And uh-huh. that is- that incensed the the Viet Cong even more. Yep. They, they actually had far more primitive arms than we did, but that incensed them and mobilized them even more, and we saw the result. If you go there. through, if you can't even go through war with with common compassion to people that you're not even fighting, then all you're going to do is breed more enemies. Absolutely, I think that's what's happening, and um, you know, it's you know, I think our, our federal government has tried to work with the U.S. economy internally. I think Obamacare is not perfect. It, it has some, at least something. more people, At <laughs> least more people are covered. Right. There were 65 million people that had no coverage. I think there were few people that have no coverage. I think it was That's the best something. that he could get past. Well, I think it's pretty good there. But internationally, I think he has been an absolute disaster. I think uh, Mrs. Clinton uh, was, was I, I don't know, I don't want to get too much in the politics, but she didn't have, other than being the former, um, you know, first later, lady, didn't really, ha- hasn't really studied international relations. And, and I think they made lots of errors. And then Kerry had a little bit more understanding, being a part of the Foreign Relations Committee, I think, commission in the Senate, I believe, was very active in that. But that's not enough. You yeah. need some very wise, savvy, just like the yeah. way you said it, Brad, people you send over there, you know, that really have knowledge, that know the game, that have studied right. for years. Look, the mediator, the, the, <laughs> the one that shows, the mediator, this is just another symptom. Yeah. Uh, Harry, Harry, of course, is, is American and pro-Israeli, but the mediator, the guy they sent, the U.S. to mediate it, used to be 
working with APEC. He used right. to be worth for that guy's name. And I said, that's like, you know, that's like putting the, the you know, sending the wolf into the hen house to, to, uh, to, to, to bring calm to the, the chickens that are fighting. Right. That, people thought people have this such a negative painted image of Obama as this super liberal guy. And he's not, he's actually a fairly moderate guy on a global scale, actually somewhat conservative. If you look at him mm-hmm. on a global scale, like, but then, um, you also get into the, like people talking about, Oh, he's a secret Muslim. If he was a secret Muslim, the Muslim community oh. would like him a lot more. <laughs> yeah. Like the Muslim community doesn't think that fondly of him. Yeah. Well, in general, you can't yeah. you can't group all Muslims together because that's a huge fallacy to begin with. But it just yeah. as a general term, but uh, you know, you said you don't want to get too much into politics. But well, I have, well, no, this I, is su- I, I have a super it. political question for you. I, I, I can't why, avoid it, so go for it. Why know? does why does America so blindly support Israel on everything, and why does it seem like the Christian members, in particular, of the Congress and Senate, support them more than even the Jewish members do? Well, this is my experience going back and forth, and as well as having interviews, evangelical Christian stations have interviewed me, in particular in Salem, Oregon, and other places, and I go to the South as well. Now, now you're, you're, you've got a, you're asking a multifaceted question. Uh-huh. The U.S., and we'll talk about the American Christians and the philosophy behind almost the blind support of Israel. Yes. Not necessarily of Israelis, but of, of the concept of the children uh-huh. of Israel returning to Israel. We'll get into that. But it's, it goes far beyond just throwing out the Israeli lobby. It goes far beyond the power of that lobby. Okay. Uh, the APEC, APEC is very powerful, for sure. But, it, it, you know, it, it goes to the heart of our political system. What happened? Well, what, what is happening in the West Bank is these colonies have become industrial centers. They've taken the Palestinian lands, and of course the International Criminal Court has condemned them as being illegal. Uh-huh. When, you, when you conquer a land, of course during the Six-Day War, Israel conquered Jordan and the land around and took over the Golan Heights, took over Gaza, took over East Jerusalem as the spoils of war that conquerors do. Right. But, under international law, you have no right to move your people into that land on a permanent basis right. and, and make settlements. And they've done that. So over, again, 500,000 Israeli Jews are in uh, the West Bank and also in the East Jerusalem, which is which is earmarked to be the potential capital for the state of Palestine. And those colonies have become industrial centers. Now, there's an Israeli-American uh, Jew who's very pro-Israel, took a tour, and even he said, of the whole area, including the settlements, and he said, you know, I, I, I'm very, um, uh, you know, upset about the settlers because they have built these luxurious places. A lot of these apartments are, are very well uh, luxurious with swimming pools and everything, uh-huh. but unfortunately... They have more water, and they're taking a lot of the water from the Palestinians. They have more water in the swimming pools than the Palestinian farmers have to cultivate their lands, and they're taking more of it. And he said there's something wrong about that. That's that's just the tip of the iceberg, Brad, uh-huh. because what's happened in these colonies is they are manufacturing arms, they are manufacturing industrial goods, and they're taking advantage, just like the Chinese do, yep. of cheap labor. Those Israeli, Most of Israeli Jews in the colonies are Orthodox Jews, and they didn't really work that much before. And they're now working in the factories, getting paid very low. So these businesses 
have a huge profit margin, and many of them are, are American investors there. Yeah. Now, now this, it goes farther than that, Brad. This is just one part of it. Those invest those big companies. I think um, you know a uh, couple of couple of the, um, you know one of the companies that's is involved is is the one who which manufa- manufactures cell phones. Uh, I can't remember the name, but it's it's a, one of the classic cell phone manufacturers of, of all. Where you have that flip, and it, it was a little small one. I can't remember the name. Okay. But uh, something um, I'll, I'll think of it. Yeah. Um, um, in any case, and other businesses have made incredible investments there. Now they turn around with their money and, and power and support our candidates. I do believe Coke Industries has a good investment over there. Coke is in there. Um, what's I can't remember that, but it's one of the oldest uh, cell phone manufacturers of all. And um, you know, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but they Motorola. Don't really- there you Motorola. go. Yeah. Motorola is there. And several other American companies, without naming them, now they turn around and put a lot of money into the supporting our candidates, including Obama, including the big banks. And even though the Democrats try to say, well, look, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's all about oil. Uh, but if you look on the main list of those supporting the Democratic oil. Party, you've got the three main contributors to um, Mrs. Clinton's campaign, the last presidential or maybe yeah. the senatorial campaign, were three banks. Uh-huh. Of course, you have labor. You have labor as well. And other, you, you know, also have and liberals. And <laughs> exactly. And they're not necessarily disinterested businesses. And no. then you have on the Republican side a lot more of the oil companies, of course, which which uh, and as well as big business. And a lot of these businesses are investing in the West Bank. So what does that mean in the colonies? That that means that though candidates that are running for office are loath to criticize Israel, criticize the occupation because they're they're getting elected because of the yeah. money, partially because of the money coming from those they're, areas. They're pumping money into Republicans and Democrats, which is Both. why you don't. Yeah, which is why you don't hear any opposing voices from either side. It creates this illusion that America is like unitedly supportive of Israel. Absolutely, and it's about interest. It's very serious, Brad, because here, um, w- with respect to um, the the influence of these, and it's not just um, you know the APEC and you know Israeli Jews and and their in, their involvement in American business. It really is uh, American businesses making money there, wanting it to be stable so they can continue making money there, including in occupied territories. Uh, makes it so that our government feels that it's got a prof- profile anytime Israel does something like extend the extend the uh, apartments and, and confiscate more land in the West Bank and extend the apartment apartment building in the West Bank uh, in, in the West Jerusalem taking apartments the land away from Palestinians the US government comes out and 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 you know fervently opposes it yeah like slaps the hand of Israel saying you're a bad boy on yeah. the other hand during this uh, last Gaza crisis and and you know uh, it was all trumped up a lot of it for security for uh-huh. Israel and so forth. Yep. But it was almost like butchering cadavers um, in, the, in the Gaza crisis. Uh, the U.S. president came out and said, "You know, we're, there's a lot of loss of life here. This is startling. Uh-huh. You have to do some. You have to think about, you know, sort of implying, sort of implying pressure, but not really saying anything." And then he got during, torn apart for that. Isn't that something? I mean, just be, just that implication. Yeah. And, and then during the Gaza crisis, the U.S. Congress almost, almost unanimous, unanimously, Republicans and Democrats alike, um, uh, you know, voted in favor of giving $200 million 
for the um, what do you call it, the Iron Dome yep. uh, defense policy of Israel. Dur- while a lot of people were, were were contesting what Israel was doing, and I'm saying, come on, stop the profiling. You know you're placating the interests, you're politicking, yes. you're profiling, and no one seems to have. And this is another thing, Brad, that uh, it's, it's really bothering me about being in Europe as well. Yeah. Very, there are very few people stepping up. Taking the risk, taking the shots uh, against them for saying and doing the right thing right. in spite of the interest. We, we have too many people who are kind of like bought out mm-hmm. all the way down the spectrum of oh, the political this, spectrum in Europe as well. The Citizens United case in America in particular really destroyed any hope that we had of impartial government. Mm-hmm. The fact that you can now contribute v- right. unlimited amounts of yeah. money anonymously, untraceable, untaxable – to any political campaign that you want leads to every single politician being in the pockets of somebody. Exactly, and you, and you cannot trace where that money is coming from. No, now, it's illegal last, to trace it. <laughs> and that, that's, isn't that something? Now, that's, I'm glad you brought that up, Brad, because that's one of the, the symptoms of what's happening today. The other one is, that, um, and which I think is vital and, and so important for you and your independent news source to get the word out to temper this tendency at one time uh, there were I think federal regulations uh, making it illegal to um, uh, centralize the news in the in, yeah. in, in, in the big news groups uh-huh. and uh, uh-huh. so that you know Fox News couldn't come in and take over all the local groups yep. and politicians yep. politicians didn't like it either because they weren't getting coverage as as much as when the local groups mm-hmm. who knew them were giving them coverage so they were opposed to uh, uh, you know, temporarily that they finally caved in and now it, when you look at TV in Texas you look at TV in Alabama you look at TV in it's California. All the same. It's all the all same because the source is coming from the same big groups. I've pointed this out so many times on my podcast that it's, it is an issue that I think it was 30 years ago, 30 to 35 years ago, we had 65 to 66, I think, news like media outlets, and now we're down to six. Yeah, yeah that's right. Six, six. main groups controlling and there, all. And there could be five if, if uh, Murdoch Industries eventually buys out Time Warner. There you go, and 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 hence hence the comment that you made that uh, often we're not we're getting filtered news. It's start, starting to sound the same. Is is not by chance because a lot of these big groups they don't even send people their own people no. uh, to the Middle East. They get the news sources off of UPS or UPI. Uh-huh. And uh, AP sources. They just re-air it. That's right. They re-air it, and then they, yeah. they, they they type it up. They make a call or two, so they don't put AP down because it's a little bit different. And yep. then they put it down as if as if they're the ones who came up with it. And often they fudge it and saying our journalists on location, where in, in reality it's just another AP source. Uh, uh-huh. you know, Associated Press yeah. or French Press or some so you know so there are, there are, so when I go to the West Bank and Israel here in the field and that's I think that's my contribution more than anything Brad is I'm I understand the politics a bit and the philosophy and I I can read the Quran and the Bible and, uh-huh. and there, there's some religious issues there and the history. But I, my contribution is I'm in the field and I see and hear things that we don't normally see by not being there. And by being there, I, I've learned to appreciate independent news sources such as yours because often there's no journalists there. And even uh, there's another independent news source that has, has – um, 
I think they're having issues right now, but they'll be back soon. They used to interview me once every two weeks. It's called The World Needs Rebels Show. And they they used to, when I used to go into the West Bank, we used to have the show. We used to schedule the show when I happened to be in the West Bank. And then they used to interview the Palestinians. And there's very few journalists going there, uh, more going to Israel, but going you know through the gauntlet of the walls and the checkpoint. Very few going in, and their bosses don't want to do it because they don't want to take the risk. But they're not getting getting the, the story directly from the Palestinians and obviously yeah. often shaded and filtered through interest and so forth when, when it does get to the states, even through, you know, uh, what, what we've always considered as valid news sources, it becomes uh-huh. very distorted. And often it's it's not just distorted, Brad, it's it's totally incorrect. Yeah. The, news that the mainstream news is getting. Yeah. So, the, you have to have independent fact checkers just absolutely. to tell you how many lies yeah. each news source told you every hour. That's right, and that, that is the role that's so fundamental, uh, the role that, that you're playing and more and more independent. So, why? Because more Americans are waking up to the fact that they're not getting the right information. Americans are slowly, it's going to take a while, Americans, waking up to that uh, fact. Americans are stupid, but not really. Yeah. We're just <laughs> slow. We're just slow. I think is most well that and um, getting Americans to care about anything in particular, especially yeah. when they're working forty plus hours a week. So all they so really have it. in their life yeah. is their job and whatnot. Right. It's hard to care about too much else that's going on. And to have the energy and the discipline uh-huh. to become informed, it becomes difficult because right. you know chasing after that dollar, dollar, mm-hmm. and the pressures of that. Is totally consuming, and even educated people don't take yep. the time to inform themselves. Well, that's that, why that's, the entertainment industry makes so much money because yeah. the only thing people have time for when they get all they want to do is they want to watch something that makes them laugh or cry right. or something. They don't want right. to think. They don't, you know, they don't want to have to learn something when they get home because they're tired. Absolutely, and I think that might be that goes to the source of maybe what's what's a problem in Western countries, and and uh, in France it's starting to evolve that way, but they still have a lot of time off. You yeah, know, uh, you still have you know even if you work part time. Oh my God, Americans call months. Europeans so lazy, uh, <laughs> and that's what we think of them as. But really, it's they're just taking care of themselves. Yeah, they're yeah. they're not working themselves. They're not working themselves to the point where they're going to bring an AK forty seven in and shoot up their the place that they work at because they hate everyone so much. Exactly, they 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 have. You know, uh, downtime and quality, more quality time. And, and even if they don't want to, the parts of the country that are closed during vacation time. Yeah, I, I would say that part of the system in France is very positive because it, it requires you to take a step back to think about things and do some reading. Whereas in the U.S., often it's very difficult to get a paid holiday. You can get holidays oh a lot, God, but not yeah. paid. You have to fight for them. And so people are so worn out and so tired that they don't take the time to fully inform them, take a step back and think about things, which I think is a symptom of, of a society that's, that's going to that, – that, that is, is, becomes very vulnerable to, um, to whoever wants to manipulate them because, of, like you say, they're so worn out and so easy to be manipulated at that mm-hmm. point because they don't have the defenses. They're not yep. strong. They don't and have the critical the thinking money. skills anymore. Absolutely. Now, now, another thing is the average American, and this is why I've, I've decided I'm not, I normally go to the Middle East every two or three months. I'm, I have the, a book that came out in France. It's, it's the translation of Storm Over Morocco. I'm going around and finding the French a little bit more informed than Americans, but uh-huh. I'm, uh, I've scheduled in January, all the way from January to February, almost every day, 
I'm on the Barnes and Noble list, and 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 I am also doing events in independent bookstores. But it's so easy to be on the list and simply go almost anywhere in the country. That a lot of the bookstores, most of my events are in Barnes and Noble, but all over the country because I realize, you know, the average American in the, the back countries is not very well educated. But things are happening. They're starting to wake up. They're very slow. And like you said, they're not essentially stupid, but very uneducated. Yes. The average yes. American. And this can change over time. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm actually going to, instead of being in the Middle East, I'm going to spend two months. It's almost every day. I'll be in Dallas. I'll be in Houston, Los Angeles. I'll be in North, South Carolina, mm-hmm. Tennessee, Boston area, New York City. And then, then, I, then I go back to France because I have to teach. That's my, And then I come back. and just, I'm trying to hit different areas and not just the big cities so that, you know, maybe I can contribute toward, you know, a bit of the awakening because if we don't awaken ourselves and, and keep informing like people don't uh, tune into stations like yours to give them the um, true approach to what's happening, we will continue the unbridled support for Israel. Mm-hmm. We're not asking questions. And then we also have the religious issue that we can get to later if you'd yeah. like. Oh, no, that's I've always said that yeah. one of my biggest theories because these are all hypotheses and theories. They can uh-huh. never truly be proven until you get someone to right. fully admit it, which is never yeah. going to happen. <laughs> that m- much of the support of Israel, especially from the hardline Christian community, comes from the fact that Israel needs to be there for Christ to come back. Yeah, it, it, you've got it. And, and I was uh, the, the point. This is this is what happened. I was invited. It was when Borders stores were still alive. Apparently, they went out of business. Yeah, unfortunately, I was kind of. You know, juggling borders, Barnes and Noble, and then independent bookstores. And I found myself in Salem, in Salem, Oregon. And uh, I was interviewed by evangelical evangelical station um, about the book, about my activities in the Middle East. And uh, they, they, I wasn't pro-Israeli enough, but still, they kind of uh, finessed yeah. the interview. But they invited me to a Shabbat dinner. Now, Shabbat, you know, is the the Jewish Shabbat that starts at sundown on Friday night and goes until Saturday sundown, a 24-hour period where it's it's the Jewish Sabbath. And they had a Shabbat dinner Friday night, and they had the Star of David there, and they had prayers, and there wasn't a single Jew. Now, the only one with Jewish background comes from my father on my side. And yet, you know, I I don't consider myself more Jewish than Christian or whatever, but I have Jewish roots. There wasn't a single Jew in the house you know, and yet they were they were saying Jewish prayers. They were Shabbat and, and you know doing Shabbat, and they showed me the information, and that's exactly what they told me. They said, you know, uh, we we really believe in the children of Israel because according to the scriptures, um, they, the children of Israel have to return to the Holy Land before our Messiah comes. And so I got the point I got loud and clear was we don't necessarily love the Israelis. We don't even necessarily like Jews, but we yeah. need them. Yeah, almost yeah. using them. Yes. But but the Jews don't mind because they're sending them millions of dollars yep. every month, every month to keep yep. them in power. And it's 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 almost the blind, you know, in a way they're blind because I'm, I, I'm not I'm not judging their theory that the children of Israel have to return to the Holy Land before the Messiah comes. I, I don't know, but I'm thinking, but. You're not going behind what is happening in Israel today and what they're doing with respect to Palestinians and so forth and so on. You're not even questioning that. You're just simply supporting them blindly for a purpose. And that, that I, I just it just baffles me. All right. 
you have this religious belief, and that's perfect. I have no problem with that whatsoever. If you think that you know your Lord and Savior will come back if these people reinherit this land, I have no problem with that. My issue comes in when you're artificially creating something that is in your scripture. Because if it's in your scripture, I would think it's supposed to. If you think that that's the truth, it should. It's supposed to happen in a natural way. You shouldn't have to artificially create it. Yeah, I didn't see it. That's a good point. I didn't really see that where it says that specifically in the scripture. Right. They've interpreted the scripture as to say that. But there's huge, huge uh, evangelical, oh, not all evangelical Christians believe that. But I see that prevalent when I go about the country and evangelical Christian will come in and say, well, wait a minute. Um, you're you're saying that there should be a Palestinian state. The Palestinians are all terrorists. They, there's a lot of brainwashing goes on in these groups to to really demonize the Palestinians. Like the mainstream news has done systematically, and now I've noticed that mainstream news is starting to temper that. And I think I think one of the reasons why Americans, even uh, average Americans, are not very well educated. They're starting to turn to other news sources like yes. yours. Uh-huh. And this is huge. This is huge. And people, well, our politicians, I think, are still backward about it. They're still trying to eat out of the hands of Israel and APEC. They, they don't realize that a lot of American Jews also are against what's happening, what the state of Israel is doing, not the, what right. the Jews are doing. There's a huge evolution here in, in information, and uh, I think it's I think it's fantastic, and hopefully it keeps going. Well, now, you've given me a lot of compliments here, and I appreciate it. I appreciate it, but I need to humble myself here a little bit, because in today's world of what I call bastard journalism, because it's not mm-hmm. real, um, there are still real journalists out there, and they are mm-hmm. in dangerous areas, doing mm-hmm. dangerous things. And those are the people that end up dead a lot yeah. of times. It's sad to say, because they're actually – journalism used to be that way. Journalists used to die. And it's not yeah. a good thing. You want to protect journalists as much as you can, but it's because they were putting themselves in harm's way to bring you the real story. And there aren't – the people that are left doing that end up dead. And then we have to hear about it from the horrible mainstream media about their colleague journalist that died. Like the, I, he's not your colleague. He is way above you. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. It's, it's almost like I – mean, I wrote a poem uh, about drones uh-huh. and about drone warfare, and I'm thinking, well, journalism is sort of parallel to that. Uh, instead of actually being there now – uh, and I do, uh, uh, you know, appreciate those journalists that are there. For instance, uh, uh, during the Gaza crisis, a guy named really Blumenthal, uh, and he's Jewish, went into Gaza, and he, uh, while the while the while the bombs were still falling, and started to interview people and went to the communities, and he found one of the things that the Israelis always are saying that oh, these Palestinians they're using individuals as human shields. Yeah, 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 that. yeah. Yeah, well, it's not true. Well, they, they uh, certainly some people have. Uh, the Hezbollah well, has to some degree. Yeah. And so is Hamas, but not to that extent. No, they're not surrounding they have, buildings and stuff with people. No, not right. at all. In fact, this is what happened. Blumenthal goes in and, uh, you know, he's not against the state of Israel. He goes in, interviews people, and you know what he found out? He found out there's a systematic military, it's, it's, I don't know if it's in the book, uh, Israeli military policy that when it takes over and when it, they start to intervene, you know, with soldiers in Gaza, one of the things they're supposed to do once they neutralize a, a village or a city area, they go in, they walk into their homes, take the people upstairs, and there's usually a roof area, 
and they put them in each corner of the roof, and the Israeli soldiers stay in the middle and shoot the Palestinians from there, hiding behind the uh, Palestinian that are standing there. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a typical scenario where people that are so quick to point their finger at others, judge others often, are judging them based upon their own uh, incapabilities or what they've been doing themselves. It's like the psychological thing. Well, here... The Israelis have been talking about, come on, Hamas, you're using, you're using you know, Palestinians as human shields, and we're not, the people didn't die uh, because we're, we're targeting them. It's because, you know, you have your, your arms, you know, in the churches, in the house. Well, it has been proven that's simply not the case. And in fact, the state of Israel actually did target UN facilities, schools, and other facilities where they knew they'd be just charged with people, women uh -huh. and children mainly, that, and Hamas was nowhere in sight. Neither Hamas nor Hamas arms were anywhere near that area. And so they're having to backtrack on that now. And apparently, Israeli soldiers have used, uh, and, and Blumenthal filmed it. Uh, you know, they took films that were taken from the Palestinians and, and showed the films of the Israeli soldiers using Palestinians as human shields to hide behind to shoot other Palestinians. So they were, in fact, doing it clearly much more systematically than Hamas has been doing it. Right. And so here, here we have a scenario of this journalist going in into hot water because the world would never have known this unless nope. he had gone in there and discovered this. And the, the, like you say, and I and I take my hat off to those going in behind the scenes. We've got to have people doing it. Yes. But it's risky. It's yes. risky. But you know, they're taking what they consider necessary risk. And I don't think I have I have nothing against people bungee jumping or yeah. or even skydiving because that does turn people on. Uh -huh. And that's exciting people. But I'm thinking there's so many necessary risks you could take out there. Yeah. To, to yeah. go to areas and bring the medical here in Africa, why do you need to even take these type of risks when you can find all types of necessary risks to go in <laughs> and, and help people out right. in medication and then report what's going on without, you know, finding other type of risky things to do to prove, I don't know, to, 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 for the, to prove your, to satisfy your excitement level or, or to prove something to yourself so it gives you courage to do other things. Maybe that's why people bungee jump or skydive and if, if that's the case and that serves a purpose. But you know what I mean? It's the yeah. necessary risks that we've all got to take from time to an, uh, from time to time. Now, this is what the politicians are not doing, Brad. No. I'll give you an example um, of the last politician I know of. Well, I'm sure there were others, but FDR did something, and I you know, necessarily was not, not necessarily an FDR fan, but he did something that was clearly against popular opinion. Popular opinion during that Depression area wanted to nationalize the bank. The banks, I mean, yeah. even my own family, a lot of the money on banks closed, and they lost thousands, they lost yep. everything. Well, they wanted the government to nationalize the bank. FDR, 80% yep. of the people on FDR said, no, this is not the American thing, and we will help the banks with the federal government. We're not going to take them over. Yes. And he, he held fast to that during his first 100 days, the first 100 days of his first um, uh, four years, and convinced his constituent that was the right thing to do with charisma, with hard work, and was reelected. So it's yep. possible that a politician can take chances to do the right thing if he or she is, is you know, has, you know, security, you know, has, has confidence in what they're doing and has, you know, and works hard at it. But I think most of politicians now, it's all about money, Playing power. Whatever is popular. Exactly. Money, power, nourished by greed and just, you know, saying, oh, we can't do that. I'm going to destroy my career. Well, you need to get some guts there and say, no, but you have to say you can 
convince constituents if that's the right thing it's going to take a while you might have to risk your career at least uh, partially yeah. but if you have confidence in yourself you can make a comeback when and, and, and the people will turn around and find out you were right take the chances but I don't see politicians well, neither one of the things we need to do with that together. is to take away we need to t- limit terms to, mm-hmm. to, to take away the fact that somebody be, can be a career politician because when mm-hmm. you can be then all you want to do is keep yourself in that position. That's all you're trying to do. You don't actually care about affecting change. If there are at least term limits and you know I'm only going to be here for so long, you want to try and get as much done during that time as possible. And you and you know I think what you said is absolutely essential, Brett. They don't care about affecting change, and I and I would like to say without. You know, identifying anybody in particular, uh, almost all the politicians I know of are in this category. I don't think they even care about what the people want. They don't nope. even care about people, period, nope. what they're doing. But the pe- they've convinced the people that they do. They're very clever at it. Uh-huh. And, and, and they'll do everything they can to maintain their power, including doing the wrong thing, because it's all about money, power, nourished by greed. And the, and the end justifies the means. I mean, that's, I know, a cliche. But here it's it, it absolutely it, at an exaggerated level. Well, we cannot find principal leaders anymore. And what is it? I don't think they're getting to the top of the pyramid. Nope. because. They're not selling out. They're not subsidized by those corporations doing bad things because the corporations know that this person is going to tell the truth and is not going yep. to eat out of their hands. They're an and exception they, and not the norm now. Exactly. And they're, so the big interests are not helping them get elected, and so they don't get elected. Yep. So what does that say about our political machine? We need to, we, we need to revamp it. I think there's something yep. very wrong going, around, going on in the U.S., very wrong, and, and in Europe as well. I, Europe is no exception to what's happening. This a terrible evolution of the lack of leadership. Now, I'll give you an example, though, of someone who did say something, and yeah. there, there is the – and I'm I'm not necessarily pro-French. I mean, I, I'm not French. I mean, I'm yeah, American. Yeah. And I don't vote here. <laughs> I have a green card. But uh, what has happened recently is absolutely astounding. The French Minister of Justice, the equivalent to the uh, Attorney General, the French okay. Attorney General, uh, has has come out. And uh, even though I'm not sure if I am in agreement what she did, but she came out and started twittering as soon as the Ferguson decision came down. Yes. You know, where, where that, the uh, police officer was not indicted. She yeah. started to Twitter uh, at dif- different things. And, for instance, in her Twitter, um, she would say uh, something like uh, uh, the uh, the grand jury made a decision uh, that um, uh, flies in the face of any any type of evolution that we can ever conceive of. It's it's a it's a dangerous cocktail. Yes. A, you know, and things like that. And, of course, she They've been asked for her removal, and you know she's the she's the attorney general of of, of, of an ally of the U.S. Even right. though France is not 100% an ally always, but this I thought she probably went over the line when she made these kind of because she's um, you know has uh, I think from the uh, Caribbean, so she's she's uh, have Af- she has African roots. Uh-huh. On the other hand, she did not fail to make a statement anyway about something that she feel strongly about right. in spite of the risks. And I'm thinking, well, I think maybe she should have tempered that by saying, look, all the facts aren't out. I wasn't on the grand jury. It's it's respectable that she took that chance mm-hmm. um, because I, even though she might have been a, over the line here, she yeah. said this. She said, she said this in her Twitter. I'm trying to She said, yeah. Michael Brown, racial profiling, social exclusion, territorial segregation, cultural relegation, weapons, fear, 
fatal cocktail. Then she cited something, I think, from I Shot the Sheriff, said, kill them before they grow. I think that's one of, uh, in Bob Marley's song, I Shot the Sheriff. Right. And she Twittered that. Uh, and so there's a huge upheaval in France about what she said. And, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a call for her removal. But I'm thinking, well, no, she's you know, not wrong. She's not I, wrong, I, I, though, entirely, because it's what the it's what the lack of indictment entails. It's what it uh-huh. means. Well, I, I, I think there um, she's you know, if I were in her position, I, I would have made a statement that this whole thing is so dubious that yeah. this, this unarmed man was killed under these circumstances, even though I don't know all the facts. Instead, she just strictly said this is a yeah. fatal yeah. cocktail. She made that decision without knowing all the facts. But I think what she did was purposely to uh, inflame the people to have them think about what's going on and right. also have them look inner, inside France as being, you know, we have the same problems uh-huh. here. And, uh-huh. But she had the guts to come out and say this internationally. Yep. And then even Mr. Obama, of course, as a president, he had to say, well, you better, you better calm down and, uh-huh. and respect uh-huh. the decision. On the other hand, okay, but you're in a position to get involved here instead of just calming people down, yeah. calming people for what purpose? Um, you, you know, he not to go out and investigations into the various police stations and whatnot. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, right? well, and what you're is... thinking, what's that ever going to turn up? Cops protect yeah. each other. Even if something, yeah. even if something wrong happened, cops protect each other. They're oh, not going to sure. talk about it. So, and, and 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 coming from Obama, systematically, even even internal things, other than I think he's doing something good with immigration. Yeah, I think that yeah. is a good step. And, and, and you know, and he's getting close, you know, close halfway through his last administration, but as he's taking chances now, when he promised to get out of Guantanamo. Yeah, and, and and I read articles, very serious articles. I didn't want to take a knee-jerk approach, thinking that he's going to be, uh, he's going to wave a magic wand. Yeah, uh, yeah. Said, and because he didn't, people were totally against him. No, it takes time. But I realized that he did not take concerted efforts. He did no. not even try to no. get out of Guantanamo. And and there were serious articles about. What he did, did not do, in spite of his promises to get elected, and he had opera, he could do an executive order, things like that. He yeah. could do an executive order. That's good for immigration, but he could also do an executive order to temper our unbridled support of Israel at the, at the, to, to the tune of $3 billion per year and warplane discounts. Uh, and it's, it's, it's ignominious the help we give them without any conditions whatsoever. We have a card to play, and yet he's so afraid, even though – he well, badmouths. Anytime he does something, he gets called a dictator. Exactly, and, 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 <laughs> and you know, he's saying, you know, uh, you know, and, and then also, you know, he'll be. Uh, he's called uh, you. You must be, you know. Oh, that must be because you're a Muslim. Uh-huh. And he's also uh-huh. tiptoeing to the tulips there, but yeah. he, he should have the security not to. He finds himself next to Netanyahu, who clearly dominates him yeah. you know, when they're together. And then when Netanyahu's not there, he badmouths him. But I think you know what he's doing. I finally figured it out. I think it's it's a deal with Netanyahu to play good cop, bad cop. He's, okay. Netanyahu's a bad cop. We want to make the world think that the United States is liberal. We're against um, you know what's happening in the West Bank. We're against uh-huh. the persecuting of Palestinians, and yet we can keep feeding them money. But we want the world to think, and I think this is play acting, is what it is. And I think it's Obama is not at all anti-Netanyahu. It's 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 orchestrated together to give this impression. Good cop, bad cop, and I think it works very well for them, at least in the short term, until people discover what's going on. And I hope they do. There was a South Park episode. I swear to God, South Park is prophetic. They uh-huh. did an episode where. Uh, 
they it was a uh, right after we went into Iraq and we were having all the anti-war and pro-war of uh, you know fighting in our country about it. Right. And um, they did an episode about that at where Cartman went back in time to when they were writing the Constitution, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they discover he discovered that the founding fathers put in the Constitution that we can go to war, but that the people have free speech and the right to assemble and protest, so that we can go to war while at the same time looking like we don't want to. That we, can, that we could have our cake and eat it too. And he comes back and tells everybody this, and he's like, see, pro-war people, you need these anti-war people so that you don't look like bloodthirsty warmongers. And anti-war people, like, you need these pro-war people because otherwise you would never fight a battle and, like, bad things would happen. Like, it was this whole thing, like, you need each other, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so it's all it's all play-acting there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's a very interesting scenario you're giving me because that that you know i've never heard it articulated like that but i think that's exactly what's going on uh-huh. and i think we're hoodwinking ourselves we're just uh, and and here here's an example let, let me give you a specific example that was that was absolutely startling and re- relating exactly to this here i am in the middle you know i do these dialogues um uh you know i might have nine or ten people orthodox jew or liberal jew with the muslim christians and the first hour or so we don't talk any politics this is how the the um, this is how the dialogue goes normally. Uh-huh. Maybe we'll eat hummus, drink tea, and and just talk. And and I'll ask the Jew. I say, well, uh, what about your um, your Muslim friend? I mean, your neighbor. Uh, what do you think? He said. I have never spent this much time with a Muslim before, and yet they've been living. And we're talking about an Israeli Jew and an Israeli Muslim, okay. uh, Palestinian Muslim. They've been living next to each other in different villages for years, but they don't talk to each other. Uh-huh. And, and, and then I talk to the Muslim. He says, yeah, I'm going to invite him to break the, fa- the, the, the fast Ramadan, and he's going to invite me uh, for Rosh Hashanah. And they start talking. You think they're talking religion or politics? No, they're just talking, you know, the, the price of lunches went up, uh-huh. and that sociology teacher is kind of weird they're talking everyday things this is how the bonding goes and then eventually i'll ask the the christian what do you think he said you know what i'm having a great time and you know and we're and 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 i'm inviting both of them to easter and we're going to have fun we're not going to talk about we're just having a good time but the, the the christian said there's a problem though because they don't believe that jesus is their savior and um and so he implies that they're kind of they're nice guys and stuff and he's yeah, he yeah. wants them to be their friends but they're going to go to hell and then the jew will come up and say and you know and that's true about the muslim and the christian they don't believe in moses the way i do and then the muslim will come out uh-huh. and say yeah and they don't believe in Muhammad is the last problem i said i don't know who's right or wrong let's uh-huh. take out the books and i can read the quran i can read arabic slowly but i can read the quran and i read the old New Testament, and I said, let's take the text out. Let's take a look. After just a few, you know, a half hour or so, they realized they've always known the Abrahamic uh, religions are similar fundamentally, but when they see it in the text, they go, you know, wow, we do believe in many of the things, and it says it right there in the Old and New Testament, and the coin it says, thou shalt not kill, help Uh the poor, treat your neighbors with respect. I said, okay, look. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna ask uh, I, I'm gonna ask you a question here. Do you think you might share the same God because you were adamant that you didn't before? And now they're starting to think. Well, you know, we we could have the same God. I said, okay. Now I'm gonna ask you a final question. I'll be back in a couple three months. This is an ongoing dialogue. Does it make sense to kill in the same in the name of God? Does it make sense to kill in the in the name of God if you share the same God? Don't answer it. That's a loaded question. Ruminate over. Right. It, I'll be back. So. 
that's how the typical dialogue goes. And then we start doing the real bonding doesn't doesn't take place just the talking. We actually will rebuild schools that were destroyed during the Antifada, make them international schools as opposed to parochial or yeshivas, and we'll replant olive trees that were uprooted for the walls so people can feed their families. Uh, we'll, we'll do that together, and that's when the real bonding starts. But then one time, this is what I'm getting at. This is where this is where it's where I'm all leading to right now, Brad. Is one time I organized a dialogue and a demonstration on the border between Jerusalem and the West Bank. It's called the Kalandia checkpoint. It's the uh-huh. problem. One of the most, it's it's probably the the one of the the most contested areas of all the the Middle East, and 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 it's it's like a, a, a epicenter of peace and conflict. Well, six thousand people showed up to this, and you know I didn't have much, enough hummus or huh. tea to go around, so we just we walked, we talked, and we started talking to the Israeli soldiers there protecting the Israeli border. But then all of a sudden, someone threw a rock or an Israeli soldier right. shot out a, a tear gas canister. It, it, canister. it turned into a full battle between the Palestinians and the Israelis. We were in the middle. We're the international. Some of us are Jewish, some of us are Christian and Muslim, trying to keep the peace because we were the organizers. We couldn't leave. And so, so sometimes Israeli soldiers would shoot at us out of frustration because they, you know, they'd shoot rubber bullets at us or uh-huh. um, tear gas canisters. Well, when it was over, Brad, this and this is the punchline. When it, this is what I'm getting at. This is where I'm, I'm getting at here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm finally getting to the punchline. I, I confiscated some of these uh, um, these tear gas cartridges uh-huh. that were shot oh, at God, us. Oh God, I now, know where this is coming. And, and guess guess where they were manufactured? USA. Yeah, and this the thing is okay. If Israeli soldiers, there's Palestinians throwing rocks at them. They're defending themselves. I can understand that. But we are. There's a whole line of peace workers talking to the press. Not a single Palestinian within 20 yards of us. They're in the back organizing, uh, and and yet they were shooting at us too with arms paid for, yeah. manufactured in the U.S., paid for with U.S. tax dollars at peace activists. Activists that don't want violence at all, they're shooting with our tax dollars at us. Uh-huh. And that's the most ironic thing of all that I found in the field. A lot of our dollars are going in, not just for the for the, the, the security of Israel, but, but shooting at act, peace activists as myself. It's almost saying, you know, we, we don't necessarily even want peace. We don't even want these activists here. I don't think Get they out. Do. I actually don't think you know? they do want peace. I talked about this. I have a very good Muslim friend who actually comes on the podcast with me fairly often. His name's uh-huh. James Moss. Um, uh-huh. And he said – one of the things he said was when Israel was set up, one uh-huh. of the first things that you're supposed to do when you take over land is to kick out the indigenous population. And they didn't do that. They let the indigenous population stay. And he said, and what that does is set up a situation where they're going to be in constant rebellion because they're not going to like you. You took their land. And um, he pointed out that the U.S. seems to uh, appreciate that a good bit because if they're set up in a state of perpetual conflict that they constantly need help then we can always be their white knight to save them. I see. It's almost like a self-fulfilling proce- prophecy set yes, up. Yes, yes. A vicious cycle. Actually, to be that way. It's, it's a vicious cycle. But you know, the neocons that were, um, you know, Rumsfeld, well, he wasn't, it was Wolfowitz, and a group of neo neoconservatives that surrounded Bush during the, the Iraqi invasion, that was part of their creed, that they've got to keep the U.S. in war because that mobilized people. That's another self-fulfilling policy. If you, if you keep yep. Americans in fear, 
of, of their own in fear of losing their security or losing yeah. their money as well, then you mobilize them and you can you can organize them and build your political strength. And it's even, much more even, easy to manipulate them when there's exactly. a fear. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but that was part of their creed. And mm -hmm. so that explains partially if not other interests were involved, of course, in the invasion, at least uh, the younger Bush's invasion of Iraq, uh, that there was a lot more there than really uh, right. you know, defending right. ourselves and our interests. You know, a lot more there than just 9-11, even though 9-11 was an issue and the Taliban being helped by Al-Qaeda. There was, yeah, there yeah. was a certain amount of justification to neutralize Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. But then what happened in Iraq and so forth, I think that was part of the creed. We've got to keep no one this war going. No one had an issue with what we were doing until that. Yeah, isn't that you know? something? Yep. And it's and the yet, whole th it comes yeah. back to um cuz you said about, you know, it sounds cliché. It sounds like that common conspiracy theorist who says that yeah. it all comes down to these people who want uh, to control us through fear. And I I agree with that because a lot of times people say stuff like that and they contradict themselves in their own conspiracy theories. But these yes. people, it's actually part of their motto. You can google them and look uh, look them up. It's it's not they're not trying to hide it. It's not even hidden. No. That, that's the that's the, the shocking thing is it's out there. They they they, they it's, don't it's care part if of their people creed. know that's what they're doing. And and in spite of that, and I think that this is the, the, the issue and this is what's driving me to do my US tour and I haven't done it. And I realize, you know, uh, in order to, to help bring peace in Middle East, we have to work with each other. I have to work with my compatriots, even in the in the, the, the back country of the U.S., mm -hmm. to, to help enlighten them. Even though I, I'm going to get flack, especially if I go into evangelical Christian areas. Yeah. I know that. But, you know, it, dialogue is dialogue. And, and, I, and I welcome people that disagree with me. But I know clearly I too. that we're going to have to work with public opinion. Uh-huh. It is evolving, and I want to be a part of it. And so that's why I'm, you know, uh, for the next few months, I will not be going back in the Middle East, probably maybe for uh, a week or so. But I've got to do this. And of course, since the book is, it's a, the book coming out, it's just a pretext. It's not about selling books because, you know, even if, if this, even if my book becomes a bestseller, it still won't pay for all the cost of traveling around because my right. publisher doesn't do that. Right. And that's okay because the idea is to, is to really share and to learn from people, but to be a part of the evolving um, public opinion in the U.S. And I feel it seriously bothering me because, and again, I'm, I'm not, you know, gratuitously complimenting you, but the cropping up of these independent news sources that are courageous, because I don't know if you've had that happen, but many of the independent news sources I've spoken to that, that literally say the things that you've been saying on the air here uh -huh. have been targeted, have been targeted by these, um, you know, evangelical Christian groups, by Israeli fanatic groups. I'm not popular enough yet. <laughs> I'm sure well, I will be, but well, I'm not that, quite popular it. enough yet. Well, it's a question of time, and, uh -huh. and they do say, um, you know, you can feel your success. I'm not sure. I can't remember who said this, and this is also has even been earmarked as kind of a cliche, but it's yeah, so yeah. true. You can feel your success not at the number of friends you have, but the, the number, number of enemies, enemies. you have. Because yep. uh, that means, you know, that means you're getting out there. Uh -huh. That means you're succeeding. That means people are hearing you. You're Even though your life is tougher. People are really. much more apt to write you if they're angry than if they're happy. 
So of course uh, you're going to get flooded with angry people, with people you've made angry, but you're not going to get flooded with people you've made happy because they don't feel the need to write you most times. It, it, that's interesting, and, and I'm even getting – what you're saying is interesting. It's helping me understand a bit, Brad, because I'm getting even um, – can blow the belt hits from my own family now. Oh, really? And that, 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 and that hurts. Yeah. But even more, I mean, it's still, but, but, you know, I, I have to realize that when you're out there doing, trying to follow your passion, trying to follow your vision, you're, you're going to have to take some chances mm-hmm. and sometimes say things are unpopular yes. because you feel them in your heart of hearts and you back them up with knowledge yep. uh, that um, and whatever happens, happens the way I see it. Yep. Uh, but I do know, and, and this is the, in other words, the coming out of a book, the issuing of a book, you only have about six to eight months to get the events, because after that, Barnes & Noble, number one, will say it's an old book after uh-huh. seven So, But they'll have you on their list now, and they'll welcome you, if they, you know, if they, they look to see what you've done. And I have a publicist, a professional publicist out of uh, Austin, Texas, who's incredible, who helps me. But they see clearly that that, that seven, eight-month turnaround, so I'm taking advantage of that. And the, so getting around in the bookstores and in... And sometimes I go to community centers when I'm invited at the same time and um, spread the word and learn from people. I'm taking and the, the book is the pretext to get me out there and it get, it get you know, and Barnes yeah. & Noble does there's some amount of publicity for it, uh, which helps me because, you know, it's, it's very expensive to do it all. So they help get it out there. And then I go from place to place for about two months. And uh, some people say, just do one event or two a week because it's tiring. I, I do. This is the first time this has happened. I've had events before, uh, you know, maybe once every two or three days. I literally have almost an event daily. And yeah. sometimes Dallas, Houston, and then I go to another state without. And I realize, well, I just have to do it. And yeah. I have to stay healthy. I have to keep up the pace. I'm not a good traveler, even though I've been traveling. I travel six months out yeah. of the year. I'm not a good traveler. I still don't know how to travel lightly, but I still, you know, you do what you got to do with it. In, 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 you know, if you have the health to do it and you have the vision, and you're willing to work hard because, you know, traveling, people look at and they think it's really sexy and romantic. You know, you know, half the time in airports, I've been so turned around with double jet lag. <laughs> uh, I've, I've been in Kiev in the Ukraine where yeah. I usually on my way to Israel. <laughs> And I saw, and I saw a, a sign that says to San Francisco, I'm supposed to go to Israel. I almost took that plane, not, not realizing uh, that I'm actually on my way to Israel and not on my way to San Francisco or New York. Right. Uh, it gets really weird. And you actually see airports more than you see where you live. But you know what? Uh, when you have the opportunity, like you have an opportunity now to be a venue and to get the word out. And you're going to get... I, I, I know it. If you keep out there, Brad, you are going to get flack. More and more flack. Oh, yeah. You're going to have these hackers. Well, you're going to have hackers. My friend, the guy who does, and you might just Google that. The World Needs Rebels show now. Uh, they were out of Colorado and Ireland, so it's a national radio station. Uh, now they, they had issues with I don't know what, but they are for a different venue. So right now, the interview that I had every two weeks has been suspended. That's been going on for a year. But they were telling me that they had been targeted before. And another person out of Salem, Oregon, said that there were some hackers that clearly, you know, that broke down his entire internet system, he said, uh, because they were saying things that were unpopular. And he thought some of them were some Israeli hackers. I mean, the real real reactionary ones. The average Israeli citizen that I meet, they really are not in favor of what the, the Netanyahu government is doing and less and less in favor of it, but you don't hear about them. Yeah. You hear about Jews and Israeli Jews and yep. pointing the finger and Zionists and all We'd that. We like to homogenize groups. 
And we do, because that's the facile thing to do, isn't it? It's an easy thing to do. Put people in boxes and, and, and have and then them. Then you don't have to think about people as being different. Exactly. Just like embracing a, an ideology, uh, like parts of the Bible or the Quran, embracing it as absolute truth, uh-huh. and you can't question it, because it is. It's, it's like a comfort zone, and we don't have to think about it anymore, and we've got all the, all the truths are there, all my life is there, so why think? But then we get into a vicious cycle, because those leaders of that ideology have an agenda, right. and, and they're sucking us in on the ideology, and yet we're innocent, we believe in it, and yet we're being... Uh, uh, manipulated. So um, that is a, that's another thing, is putting ourselves in boxes. In a, we all need a comfort zone one time or another, but an ideological comfort, comfort zone. Now we've got manipulators, and, and, and they're not there to help us. That's uh-huh. just it. Through the ideology, they've got an agenda, they've got an ulterior motive, and often it's about power. Even religions... Right. You know, religions become like businesses, power, money, nourished by greed. And, and, and when you look at the ideology itself, you go, where's Jesus in all this? Yeah. Where's Mohammed in all this? Mm-hmm. I ask myself a lot. And, and when I see some of the uh, Hindus, Hindus have clashes, you know, with um, with Muslims on the Pakistani border there in India and other places. Yeah. Um, I've heard about and I said, but when you read the Bhagavad Gita, the, one of the creeds of the Hindus, one of the, one of the uh, you know one of the texts that Mahatma Gandhi really believed in, and, and I I believe in it. You say, well, where is the Bhagavad Gita and all this? And there's there's religious discrimination. And where is that in the Dhammapada and the Buddhist creed too? Because the Buddhists also have been conflicting with other religions. They do believe in peace and harmony, but where are these people coming from? Where right. do you see where do, where do violent Buddhists come from? I've never heard of that actually, and I. I keep up with that kind of stuff. I just don't get it. And, well, uh, I found, and I was more than know about this, some of the Buddhists that I know, they said, well, there's these very, very um, property-oriented Buddhists. And, of course, they, they, they do meditation and so forth, but they, they, they do have brainwashing like other groups do, that those that don't follow their creed are uh, enemies. And they're I can't explain exactly where in the world. I was more conversant with it before, but it's just unbelievable when you look at the text. But then even when you look at, you know, Christianity and teachings and you look at the Old Testament, there are some things that seems to uh, enhance violence, especially in the Old Testament. I don't know if that's the word of God or not. I'm still kind of figuring it out. But Uh um, you you understand, well, what does that have to do with brotherhood? What does that have to do with the Ten Commandments? Treating your neighbors with respect and so Uh forth? I I don't get it. Well, I, I finally understand. Stop being naive. Go back and read Voltaire's Candide about or institutionalized religion. Now, the Catholic Church is not the only institutionalized religion, and, and there's a good things about the Catholic Church and the Protestant right. churches that they do good things. The new Pope has been so awesome. Branch, they, pretty much, you know, and you're going, wow, you know, they, they need this type of leadership, uh-huh. and this this is make, this is going to make waves. And and I congratulate, he he's making waves, <laughs> and, that, and that is amazing. And I say, hey, more power to you. Yep. When you have an opportunity, you have a choice. You can usurp power. You can you can you can uh, you can make a silver lining for yourself. Make yourself in this huge economic comfort zone. You have a choice, or you can try to do the right thing, motivated to do the right thing with the people. You're going to be taking chances. You can also be subject to assassination or or to be targeted, like my friend. The world needs rebel shows. He has been targeted, apparently, and even has health problems with it. But he's still out there, and he's still motivated, uh, you know, to the extent that his health will allow him to do it. I say, hey, follow your passion. Inform yourself well, as you've been doing. You've been studying. You have to study things carefully. Take Uh that step back. Then move forward without fear. 
of being judged and well, without fear that even though you're doing the right thing, that you're not going to make a million dollars or that you're not going right. to impress people. That, that, all that fame and stuff will follow. That's even irrelevant to following your own truth. I never expect to make a dollar doing this. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't expect, you know, be, you know I, I have members of my family now that are actually uh, in, 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 engaged in lawsuits thinking that, you know, I'm going about the world with a book. They don't realize, and, and when they finally realize that the bottom line is I'm not making money. When I look at the cost of uh -huh. going around compared to royalties, I don't even make half the royalties I get go into the traveling, you know, uh, and trying mm -hmm. to work with people that they understand, but they see you know, yeah, I've been on national TV. I've actually been on Fox News and even major news sources. And even I it was even on the Savage uh, Savage Nation show. Now, yeah. I don't know if you heard of him. He's very reactionary. Uh -huh. A lot of these, you know, talk shows like Limbaugh. He's he's like Limbaugh. They're paid very to be much revving up anti-Islam. And their and their ratings go up when every time they get these mad people on their show, right. they make a lot of money. But they did. Michael Savage, who's, who's, who's like the third most listened to talk show in the country, very similar to Limbaugh, uh, actually gave me a good interview. He actually let me see. Did not censor. Did not put words in my mouth. Did not cut me off like he normally does. So you know, I I, I allowed myself to be interviewed by him, thinking that you know there's a million people listening to this show, uh -huh. and hopefully I can be strong enough not to get sucked in, you know, to his very clever manipulating because he's the boss yeah. he's asking the yeah. questions and it turned out okay so you know there are some mainstream news sources that that will allow you to speak the truth to what you feel is the truth without censoring you but most of them do censor and when you get to a sensitive area that they feel that might affect their ratings it's about money too they'll just cut you off throw you out like a yeah. like, like socks uh, so this is where the independent news sources play an incredible role today and, and you have comedians. to be and, com and comedians <laughs> for sure they break the ice and they work with the people and this I think is, is a future for in Enlightening Americans and getting through the crust of the, mm -hmm. you know, the, the the average American is clearly not very well educated. To you know, focusing on the blogs, independent news sources, the discussions, the dialogues, and sooner or later, the politicians will follow suit. The politicians, I believe, Brad, are going to have to take our lead because the politicians I see out there on top of the pyramid have got there through fluffing of money and interest. Will have to come down off that pedestal. Uh -huh with the people if we force them to do the right thing and i think by mobilizing through interest groups you know um you know uh if you, know, you hurt their individual wallets, level if you could hurt their wallets in some sense they will bend to your opinion i think that's right but the grassroots level we have to be able to do that we need to massively organize and realize that uh, in the long run it's not good for their wallets too to yeah. do this type of thing and to engage in this type of warfare but we're going to end up doing the same thing like we did in vietnam and iraq we spent millions and it's unfortunate and many of our best our used lives sent people over to iraq and vietnam to come back in a box and i don't know but I, I've concluded, and I hate to do this, especially if the, the parents of some of those um, killed soldiers, women or, or, or men, in Iraq and Vietnam hear it, but they, they died for nothing, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. In fact, Iraq now is even worse than it was before, and uh, so is Vietnam. We destabilized the country now, so now this horrible Absolutely. group called ISIS can come in and just start beheading any, everybody. 
Absolutely, and they feel justified from the the U.S. the the Western forces going in, thinking that we're going to change everything, actually making things worse. They said, "Well, the Americans they made things worse. We're here now to bring justice back to the people," and they're buying it because、yeah. the U.S. really did、uh, make a huge. They, uh, uh, they 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 set up a huge political vacuum there, and when they left, it just sucked all the fanatics and brought them up to the top. And we see what's happening. Of course, they got funding. Uh-huh. And so forth, so on. When we did have, of course, it would, we had to get out. I mean, this, that was a quagmire. On the other hand,、um, going in was the issue, and also, as we said before, the, the and this is the parallel between U.S. mistakes and Netanyahu. Netanyahu, not like Sharon,、uh, has not worked with the moderate Palestinians. So you've got thousands. Think of it this way: in the West Bank, you've got thousands of moderate Palestinians that want to work with Israel, that recognize the state of Israel. But every day, they're taking more of their land; they can't feed their kids. Do you think those moderate Palestinians are remaining allies of Israel? Little bit by little bit by bit, they're becoming radical and totally opposed. And Netanyahu wants this because、yeah. the more radical the Palestinians are, the more they'll attack Israel.、Yeah. And he's got that new conception that he has is for his cause. Exactly, and then he was able to maintain his power because he almost lost his government, Netanyahu, two months before Gaza. Gaza was perfect for him because then he got an 80% mandate during Gaza. He was able to mobilize his government, and he's been trying ever since. He kind of lost credibility because he promised the Israelis that he was going to demilitarize Gaza. And this is all done for security. And these tunnels were terrorist tunnels. But then there's a list of things that were going through the tunnels that were prohibited by Israel, and that's why, to, to, because of the blockade, they,、uh. were, they made the tunnel. There were pampers, chocolate, potato chips. Many things were on the list prohibited. The Israeli would not allow into Gaza. The tunnels were also for med- medication, and of course they brought arms in too. But they called. Netanyahu, these terrorist tunnels. We've got to block them all up, and we will demilitarize, demilitarize Gaza. Well, the truth has come out. They weren't just terrorist tunnels, and they have not demilitarized Gaza. So he started losing, you know, in the polls. And what has he done since then? He's added more apartments. You see, there's a corridor、yeah. between Jerusalem and Bethel. He says, "I'm going to add a thousand more apartments in stolen Palestinian land in the colonies, and also in East Jerusalem to placate、uh, those on the right." That's not going to cause some kind of uprising. Absolutely, and it's going to placate the, the conservative in his party to try to keep power. So、yeah. he knows he's no idiot. He knows that's the wrong thing. He by doing that, that's going to rev up the conflict. But all he wants to do is maintain his power.、Mm-hmm. That's all he cares about in the short term. Mr. Sharon again was no saint, but I'm sure he would never have made these mistakes. He would probably by now, if he were, had not fallen into coma, I think if he would have followed out his plan, even though he's totally hated by Palestinians because he killed a lot. And he, you know, he confiscated a lot of Palestinian lands because he was the originator of the settlements. He had the vision for Israel to, to work with the Palestinians. You have to, and yet, and he already had his mandate because he was a war hero and he was very well respected. Whereas Netanyahu is nowhere near the respectability, so he's trying to make up for it、yeah. by mobilizing people through combat, through rattling the sabers. The, the classic approach that that that, that George Bush. As long as we're in danger, you need me.、Uh, just like George W. Bush, he pulled that string. I don't know. How many times? Because、yep. the neo- 
around him. That was their creep. And we're back in the quagmire. Yeah. I just wanted to tell you, Brad, in 15 minutes, I have another interview. Yeah. Just so that no, that's, no I was actually, or, I was just about to say, we are at an hour and a half, and I usually stick to like an hour. But <laughs> that's, no, that's fine. It's because I lost track of time, and we were just so <laughs> interesting of a conversation. So, yeah, I, I want to thank you so much. And if you ever Appreciate do decide it. to do a U.S. tour, consider uh-huh. Williamsport, Pennsylvania as a stop. Uh, well, I'm sure well, I'm, we can I'm find going, some kind of accommodations for you. Well, I'm going to. I'm going. I don't know how close Philadelphia is. I don't think I've been. Philadelphia is about Philadelphia. three hours from us. Well, well, it's not that far because yep. I've been going. I've been going like in South Carolina. I'm going to Philadelphia. But uh, if you will send me an email. Tell yeah. me, because I don't even think I had your address. No. And I'll see if I, I still have some slots open uh, to see if I can have an event nearby, and uh, maybe we can get together, you know, and at least no, get together and talk, yeah. talk and stuff. That'd be uh, awesome. Maybe, maybe do an in studio interview because by then there'll be more things. That that's in January and February, yep. and, and I will be all around that area. I'll be all around, be Washington awesome. D.C., Philadelphia, New York, New Jersey. I'll be in that. I'll be in Connecticut too, and all those areas. So uh, just send me your address, and, yeah. see, and, and I'll take a look and see if I can set. If I can, I'll just get close by somewhere, yeah. and we'll get together. Or, uh, yeah, Sounds I'll great. come down and meet you somewhere. That's fine too. Yeah, uh, I, I think I could probably get close to you. The way things are going, it's like all I have to do is call up a bookstore, and the, the you know the, the yeah. I mean, we got a bookstore right nearby at the mall, a Books a Million that might be able to do something. Really? Yeah. Well, well t- tell me about that in your email, and I'll yep. contact. Okay. I will. It's three right. hours is nothing. I'm, I've uh, got a car, and I've, I've even got. I, I'm even from one place in Tennessee to South Carolina. One day I have an event in in, in South Carolina. The other one is in. It's four hours away, and I'm yeah. going to it. I'm driving to it. Yeah. It's it's you know so that three hours is nothing compared to some of the some of the you know some of the uh, the, the differences in time or the mile differences from one day to the next. Three hours is, is, is could almost sometimes be average when I'm traveling per day. Awesome. So that could that could do it if I'm in Philly awesome. or even if I'm in another place because I'm so so send me your, yeah, your information. Send I'll, me information about I'll that get a hold of you definitely because I w- I would love to have you back on too maybe a couple months down the road so. And we so. can maybe do an in-studio thing, yep. but there'll be a lot more happening in a couple of months. So yeah. I appreciate this. And uh, just tell me if you're going to – if this is going on internet, if there's a link that I can put yes, it on my absolutely. website. Uh, my, the episodes typically get posted about uh, – within a month or so typically okay. of recording. Um, I have a number of recordings in line ahead of you. But because okay. of that, I'm going to be putting out two or three episodes a week for the next Excellent. month or two because I have a mass amount. Every, there, I've wow. had a lot of people contacting me lately to do interviews. Wow. So uh, it's been fantastic. So well, well, keep it going. You sound like you, you know, you, you. As far as the interviews have gone, and I've had a few, you, you seem to be, you know, far more um, knowledgeable than most uh, people interviewing me. Wow, so I, this is important. It sounds like you have a lot of interviews. Ooh, major you, ego you, stroke. <laughs> well, well, you've thought things out. You take the time to think, and that's clear. In spite of your being busy and busy, it's clear that you're taking the time to think this out, uh, and you're not just giving out the knee-jerk approach or the knee-jerk questions. Right. And I just um, want to encourage you to keep it going because because your 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 source, your independent news source, is going to be more and more vital because it's teaming up with others and tempering the ignominious. Uh, you know, inexact and filtered news is coming out uh, in mainstream news, and people are, are getting wise to it, especially mm-hmm. through your, your news sources. So keep it going. I appreciate it. I uh, thank we'll you so touch. much for your time. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, we'll definitely keep in touch. So I'll let you go here and get ready for your next interview.